The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Katie Falato. Katie joined West Point inspired by the service of her father and her grandfathers. Katie had a strong work ethic and had a structured and disciplined childhood. She participated in athletics and was academically challenged in high school. Katie was prepared for the tangible rigors of West Point, but initially struggled to build a community to sustain her at the academy. Katie learned to build and invest in the people around her while at West Point and has paid great dividends ever since. Katie continues to build teams and to serve her community, from serving as a quartermaster in Germany, supporting the warfighter in Afghanistan and Iraq, to serving in the Maryland National Guard in support of soldiers deploying abroad, to serving as an oncology nurse at John Hopkins. This is her story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Alpha Coffee. Alpha Coffee is a veteran and military spouse co-owned and operated company dedicated to offering their customers amazing coffee, promoting the warrior lifestyle, and providing the highest levels of service and giving back to our military and veterans. I've been drinking their Warrior Select and Double Barrel Black Brews for the past two weeks, and there is nothing more comforting on a cold gray day in the Pacific Northwest or at West Point than a smooth cup of dark coffee. Please support this company, and when you purchase either on Amazon or on their website, alpha.coffee.com, Use our promo code through the gray. Thank you. Welcome to through the gray. We're speaking with Katie Filato. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great, Joe. So first question, why West Point? Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't thinking about West Point at all, but I did know when I went to college, if I wanted to go to college, I had to go for free. So at first it was really the financial aspect of being a college graduate that attracted me to West Point. And actually, my dad would always have us sit and watch the Army-Navy game. So that's what I knew. I thought this was the place where the Army-Navy game happened. And it looked exciting. It looked fun. Little did I know that's not entirely the case. But then as I was going through the process to get in, I realized how far that was. And once you get in after going through all of that, it seemed like a good Thing to try, but I really was not completely educated about what I was getting into when I got there. So it was more of the growth once I got there that made me realize I was in the right place at the right time. But a lot of it was financial, to be honest with you. Did you come from a military background? Did your family serve in the Army, the Air Force, any of the other branches? My father was in Vietnam. And my grandfathers were in, I think it was World War II, uh, but nobody else. And my father had actually applied to West Point and got in, but then couldn't get a nomination. And he was working on getting a nomination from Wyoming. 
because he couldn't get the nomination from New Jersey and that ended up falling through. So he never went to go, which I also think is why he always used to make us sit in front of the Army-Navy game and watch it every single year and go up there to visit and see. But really, so it's more of like my grandparents, my grandfather's and my father's military service. Now, from your perspective and your family's perspective, was West Point an opportunity for college and service and then moving into the civilian world? Or was the idea possibly a career? Well, because I didn't really know much about what the military life would look like beyond the commitment. I wasn't really thinking of it as a career long term. I just didn't know. And then my family was very supportive as to really whatever decision I made was an okay decision to make because they were comfortable that as I experienced different things that I would decide to either stay or get out and go into the civilian world. But also at the time, you know, deployment was few and far between. So I think it wasn't as scary as it might be to go in now or go to West Point now. You grew up in Jersey and relatively close to West Point. Did you do a lot of prep by visiting the school after you were accepted or in preparation for acceptance? What did you do to get to improve your chances for success to get in and then success when you were there? No, that was part of the problem. I didn't. We visited. Uh, we went to go see her, but we didn't do much prep to actually be ready to go entirely. I exercised a lot and I was involved in a lot of things with, in high school. So like the academic part was a fairly easy transition. But no, looking back, there's a lot of things I could have, should have, would have done, but I didn't. I definitely did not. I graduated high school two days before we actually started. Wow. There wasn't even time. So what was walking into Beast Barracks and the first day of West Point like for you then? It was terrifying. I was like ready to go back home. I was like, I, what am I doing? What is this? What is this place? And my mom and dad said, this is a good thing, Kate. You need to at least try. And I said, I have, I really, this is not what I was expecting. And so I just, that's what I did. I just tried and kept trying and definitely messed up a lot of things. But as I became more comfortable in my surroundings, then I felt like I was in the right place. But it took a little bit of time to acclimate because I really didn't have any idea. And good thing I what grew up in a very strict family because <laughs> I, have, I really don't know what would have happened. What helped you the most? Was it the female new cadets with you? Was it your peers? Did you have a good mentor there or was it phone calls back to mom and dad? Honestly, it was more of the relationships that you build there. I felt like it was a community. And definitely my phone calls back to my parents were helpful. And they don't believe in quitters. So I would also encourage you to stay, stick with it. But I want to say Julie Ramirez was my roommate in Beast. And then she was actually my roommate again our senior year. So that was nice 
to have that come full circle, but she was kind of in the same position as I did. She really didn't know what she was doing either. So we felt comfort in that, but it was definitely helpful. And just the friendships that you make and encouraging each other is what I think actually got me through Beast and then through the rest of the time at West Point. When you hit the academic year, did you feel like you started to get your feet underneath you or when was that point that you started to have a little bit of success and a little bit more confidence that this was the right choice? Honestly, the academic year, because the high school that I went to, some of the classes that we had plead year, I had already taken. So it was a more of a review, like the chemistry, I had already taken a very similar chemistry class. So it was a review of the physics. I'd already taken physics and I'd taken AP physics. So those kinds of transition to the academic year is really where I made what became more confident. It wasn't easy, certainly, but I felt more in my element. What parts of West Point did you see as opportunities that you wanted to take advantage of besides the academics? Sports, clubs, intramurals, what did you go after? Well, I played lacrosse and that was... Again, a very much a community feel, feeling, and I wasn't good. I really wasn't. I was average to worse, but I loved the team. I loved being a part of that team. And the friendships that I made there playing lacrosse are still friendships that I have today. So that also gave a little bit of balance between the academics and the military side of West Point, but it also gave it a little bit more of an element of fun. The experience of being like your hometown of, or your home state of New Jersey, relatively close. Did that allow you a little bit more freedom that when things got difficult at West Point, whether you could go do lacrosse and see some of the Northeast through some of the games or tournaments, or when you had shorter breaks, you were able to go down to Jersey. Did that help you kind of get through the experience to keep you motivated and keep you pushing forward? Definitely. And actually my grandparents were lived in North Jersey and they would come all the time. And so sometimes we'd be, it was, I remember an experience on July 4th. It was our, during these, and we were going to see the monuments. And I remember like, I don't really care about the monuments, but okay, let me continue walking. And I saw my granny standing by one of the monuments and I wanted to run over her to her, but I couldn't. So I had to kind of wave and she was like waving to me, but there was a few different times where I don't know how they got where they got. Coming back from Buckner, I saw them. Another run back, I forget which one, which year it was. It might have been when I was at Cadre or something. But they were there in the middle of Central Area. I don't know how they got there. But I feel like they just popped up. And they knew when I needed them or something like that because they always popped up at that time. And they would come to a lot of the games and... So it was always good to see them. Did you ever have a moment after Beast and after that first year where you still questioned it? Oh, definitely. Actually, after the second year, because we had to make the decision whether you're going to stay or go. But I definitely had to do a little bit of soul searching to figure out if this is really what I wanted to do. And ultimately decided that it was, and I'm glad that I decided that, but it wasn't it wasn't a very seamless, easy decision. There was, a, there was definitely a lot of back and forth. 
to figure out what I should do or shouldn't do, or should I just leave at that point and kind of cut my losses and go try something else? Or should I stick it out for the next two years and then see and see where it goes? But a lot of it for me was not, it wasn't, oh, I'm going to get to graduation. It was, I'm going to get to next semester. I'm going to get to the next year. I'm going to get to this point. It was more of very small goals. When I look back now, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I look back now, that's how it went for me. What was holding you back? What was causing that trepidation? I don't know. I really don't know. It was probably the uncertainty of after graduation, what that would look like, and really having very little control. But I'm not exactly sure what it was. I think it was probably a little bit of confidence, a little bit of uncertainty for sure, and just really not knowing what exactly the military life would bring for me and if that was actually what I wanted to do. Your major, did that help you kind of decide what you wanted to do after the military? No, it didn't really because I probably looked like I was a lot more put together, but I really wasn't. I was an economics major and I did that. I was, I actually wanted to do chemistry. But then I realized how much lab you had, and I wasn't about to do all that lab. So I did economics instead, which I enjoyed. And then when I came out of the military, I always did work. I did work with the National Guard. At one point, I was a paralegal for a defense contractor, and now I'm a nurse. So really, the economics piece was helpful because I was in logistics after West Point and there was a lot of budgetary decisions and things like that had to be made. And then now in my nursing job, I'm a manager. So we deal with quite a bit of budgetary decisions that are being made. So now it's coming into play a little bit more, but no, it was a good major to get through without going to lab. I think chemistry would have been better for me now, but chemistry wasn't what I wanted to do at the time because of all that lab. So why did you choose the branch that you chose? I wanted to do finance. I wasn't, I wasn't ranked high enough. So quartermaster was my second choice, but it was, I mean, it was a good choice. I definitely learned a lot and a lot of useful skills that I think I learned more as a quartermaster officer to bring to the civilian sector than I did in my economics major. But there was definitely some overlap. But I did want to do finance. I think there was, what, two people probably that got picked for that. And one of them was not me. It's one of those weird things where you're low enough that you can't get some of those really highly competitive ones, but you were high enough that you got a pretty good post-selection. Yes. Yeah, that worked out. That worked out well. So talk me... Talk me through graduation and really what that was like for you and your family and then after graduation. So graduation, because of like what I described before, that there were so many smaller milestones to even get to graduation. And actually, you probably don't even know this, but during, I think it was Cal year going into our first year 
I had this issue with my hands where like I couldn't grip things. And so I was going through a lot of testing and MRIs. And at one point they thought I possibly had MS. And eventually things cleared up. They put me on steroids. I went down to Walter Reed to get checked out. And so I didn't even know at that point if I was going to be able to graduate or if I was going to be able to go into the military. And so that was also exciting because that all that medical stuff turned around for me and that I was actually able to graduate. So that was a really exciting time. And then I went to Fort Lee. And I remember being at Fort Lee, Virginia, when 9-11 happened and being in this, it was a field exercise where they were working through logistic support. And actually, I thought, well, this is a crazy joke. Why would they bring that this into this scenario where the Twin Towers got hit and then the Pentagon got hit? This makes no sense. But I really thought somebody was kidding. And then I was able to go to Germany after finishing at Fort Lee. So the traveling around to kind of get to Germany was also great, even though it was quite a bit of a tragedy that happened in the meantime. What impact did 9-11 have on you and your family? The proximity to the location? So my, where I was living, my family was living at the time is an hour train ride from New York City. So there was a lot of folks that lived where my parents lived and commuted into New York City every day for work. And my best friend's father was on his way to work. And for some reason, he missed the train that day. So he was going in much later. So he wouldn't have arrived in the city until like about an hour after the Twin Towers were hit. So he was able to get turned around, I think, in Hoboken to come back to where we were from. So that was a really close call. But there was definitely folks that my family knew well and that my parents knew well that were killed during that time. Or that there's folks that they knew whose spouse was killed. They may not have known that person very well, but they have learned. And there was a lot of support in the town, like through the church and just through the community. But it was definitely a very close situation. But where I originally lived was right across from New York City. They just happened to move away when I was 12. So we were a little bit further apart. But I do think about that sometimes, even growing up in Bergen County, right across from New York City and what that would have been like. When you got to Germany after officer basic course and then after 9-11, what was the feel when you got with your first unit? So my unit had just returned back from Kosovo. So when I, they actually didn't know I was coming. And that was a little bit petrifying. I arrived at the airport. They told me when I arrived at the airport to go to the USO. So I went to the USO and they got me to a base right outside of Frankfurt Airport called the 64th Replacement. And I got on a bus that took me to my post. It was me and two other people on the bus. It was a, and it was a big coach bus too. So you felt very much alone. And I had never traveled outside the country before. I had been to Florida one time. So I wasn't used to traveling like that. So that was also frightening. 
And they dropped one guy off at another base. And then it was me and this other kid that were on the bus. And we arrived on the post on a Friday at 5.30. So we got, they, the bus just dropped us off in the front of the, like, they see. And he was like, well, what do we do now? I said, I have no idea. So we walked around with our suitcase for a couple of minutes and eventually ran into somebody. And then basically there was three people left on the base. So I think, I can't even remember. It might've been the company commander who took me to my sponsor who happened to still be at work that day, but everyone else was gone. The post was completely empty. And they got him to the barracks and they got me to my sponsor. And my sponsor thought I was coming the next Friday. Okay. So I was able to meet with my sponsor and he helped me find a hotel to stay. And then he took me around the area and we looked for apartments. And he was basically with me for three weeks while we went to some classes to get acclimated to the German culture. He took me to get my driver's license. He helped me find an apartment and then got me all set up. And I was able to get a car and just be a little bit more independent. But he was definitely there guiding me and helping me for the first three weeks. And that brought me basically to Christmas because I arrived shortly before Christmas. And so that was really hard because you don't know anyone just yet and you're there for the holidays. But Nicole Dieso was in Baumholder and I was in Kaiser, right outside of Kaiserslautern. So we were able to link up right near Christmas. There was a huge snowstorm. It was really hard to get around. And all the cars are rear wheel drive. So you just felt like you were going to get in an accident. But I really didn't care. I just wanted to see a familiar face. And so did she. So that was a good thing as I was moving to another country, right, right near Christmas in the middle of wartime. What was your experience like serving in Germany? Like, like you said, there were units from Germany going to Afghanistan in support of the NATO mission there. And you had this ramp up in preparation for Iraq. So my unit was a logistics unit that was really placed all over the country. So there was a couple of units that were out in Grafenbeer, and then some were in another base near Kaiserslautern, and then I was in a missile ammunition depot. So it was a lot of logistics support to the war effort, but it was really interesting to see the scope of what you can do from a very small post. There was a lot of ammunition. All, basically, most of the ammunition that needed to go downrange was coming from where I was working. And there was a lot of German nationals that also worked there. And so to see both countries really coming together for one common effort was really nice to see. Then there was also the part of living in Germany, which was fantastic. To be able to travel around and go different countries in no time. It's like going from state to state. You're going from country to country. So that experience was wonderful for me because, like I said, I had been to Florida. Before I moved to Germany, I had been to Florida for three days. And then the New Jersey shore. So it opened my eyes as to a lot of different cultures. 
there was still, even though there was this big ramp up to wartime, there was still a lot of opportunity to go experience the country and experience other countries in Europe as well. I mean, I think I've spent a grand total of 90 days in Germany for the military, but I've seen every country I can possibly get to within driving distance or train distance because it's, there's so much history and culture there. And it's easy to get around and it's not that expensive. If you really think about what you can do in a short amount of time, because with the training holidays, so whenever there was President's Day or something, they would always give us off the Friday before that as well. So it gave you a, basically a four-day weekend on most months. So there was a little airport called Ryan, our little airline called Ryanair, which is very tiny. All of the airports are off-site to another major international airport or major airport. And sometimes the flights were 99 cents. So I would look and see what flight was 99 cents and I would get on angle. So with taxes, you're probably flying to a different country for $50. So I took advantage of every single Ryanair flight that was 99 cents that I could do. As things start to ramp up and units start to deploy to Iraq, what was your experience like in Germany? So we actually were positioned at first in Turkey. And there was two units that were in Turkey for, I want to say about two months. And then they ended up coming back home. And then we deployed, our unit deployed a small team to Kuwait for more like support operations, ammunition operations. And then we ended up later deploying the majority or about half of our unit into Afghanistan. But we also, because of the logistics missions that were still taking place in Germany, we actually had a lot of reserve units come to join our team. So we had a reserve unit out of outside Fort Bragg and another reserve unit that I, it's slipping my mind exactly where they were from. But it was like these augment, augmentee type units that when our units were forward, we were getting backfill from the reserve element in the States because the amount of logistics support that we need to provide never changed, even though our unit was basically cut in half. And so you have half your unit poured at any given time, rotating to different theaters and back. And then you have this kind of rear D, this cadre force that is absorbing reserve and guard units to keep the mission going in Germany. Yes. What was that like? Was that this, the, the, did it feel like you were the person that was receiving that young lieutenant or that young NCO off the bus on a 5.30 Friday afternoon? You know what? There was probably is some similarities um, to that experience, but I was starting, I was very enlightened by what the reserve element was all about because I really didn't understand it or didn't have any idea. But I thought it was really intriguing that everyone was that was coming to help us and really what that's what it felt like. It felt like someone was coming to help us. Like someone was coming to augment us. It was a good feeling that all of these folks had another job. They had their life. And so their stories were really interesting about why they were in the guard or why they were in the reserves and why they were excited to be here with us in Germany doing this work. But there was so many soldiers that were still back 
and the rear detachment that it really did feel like an augmentee type unit. How did you lead and serve through that with the turnover of personnel, the ambiguity of the mission forward because you can't see it directly, and then leadership that spread throughout the, the globe as well? So at the time, I was the S3, and then I ended up being like the rear detachment battalion XO. So it's really putting a lot of the pieces together and just trying to put this jigsaw puzzle together in order to support the folks that are forward and accomplish all of the mission and support these soldiers that were coming in from some other location. But it was similar to what we did in Kosovo as well when our unit deployed. It was the transfer of, we did the transfer of authority between a first AD and first ID. And so it was the same kind of workflow where you're moving, when you're moving folks to where they need to be and then sending somebody back home and also providing the logistics support. So it didn't seem so complicated. Now, when you think about it, it's definitely complicated, but when you're in the middle of it, you just have to do it. And my, the rear D commander was amazing. So he provided very clear guidance, told me exactly what he needed from me, and then was able to do it. And the other rear detachment staff was also very experienced, very committed, and very focused. And so it was a nice balance of leadership, but also being able to get done what we needed to do. Did you have soldiers come back who were injured? And how did you deal with that? Uh, no, we didn't. Well, I take that back. We actually had a worse situation happen. One of the soldiers that deployed committed suicide on guard mount about two weeks into the deployment to Afghanistan. So that was something that we had to deal with as a unit. But, and even looking back, he had done something similar, had a suicide attempt when he first moved to Germany. He ran away. He cut up all his uniforms, cut up all his clothes. He, we weren't able to find him. And then he sort of settled out as far as his mental health. But looking back, he also went off his antidepressant medications and things like that in order to deploy. But that was really a very challenging situation to go through because you can accept if something happens to a soldier during wartime. You don't want it to happen, but you can understand it. But to lose a soldier due to suicide was worse. I felt like it was worse for me. The hard part with that is the what ifs, the coulda, mm -hmm. shoulda, was. Because you can trace back what it, what is the area that I missed? What is the, the area as a leader we can fix to prevent this? But at least if it's a combatant action, you can say, well, well, there is, there's an actor, there's someone moving against us. So you can't predict everything they do. But suicide's yes, much, exactly. much harder. Oh, yeah. And you, and in some ways you can say that you couldn't prevent it or you couldn't have predicted it, 
But when you really look back and putting some pieces together, then, and it was like, you know, leaders who were there when he first got there that remembered. But the folks that were in leadership positions, because you're moving through different positions so frequently, don't necessarily have that historical knowledge. The second part of that that gets really tough is family. And I saw that when I was company command in Korea, when you have family members, the immediate family, like the spouse or the children forward, but they extended families back in the States. Yes. Did you guys have to deal with those situations as well? And what was that like? A lot of the families actually stayed in Germany. The family support group was very strong and very supportive. Some families did end up going back to the States because that's where their support system was. But a lot just stayed because you sort of developed this family in a new country and a community in a new country before the deployment even happened. Because your family for holidays, for birthdays, for baby shower, for what all those kinds of things that happen, the life events that happen, you're supported in a very different way. So a lot of people just stayed. Because that's where their life was. Which is probably different than when you were in Korea. The restriction there was a good chunk of Area 1, which was up near the DMZ, didn't have the facilities to support families. So even if you were offered the ability to stay there for longer than a year and it wasn't a hardship tour, your family would have to be down south near Seoul. So many soldiers and leaders chose not to bring their families forward. Or if they did, it was a spouse or just one kid. Because middle, middle, middle age and high school, or middle school and high school kids, there wasn't the facilities at the time to take care of them. And so a lot of what we had to do in Korea was to also oriented back at CONUS. as like, how do you establish an FRG to support families who aren't even in the same country? Yeah, that we didn't have that. There was definitely some families that left Germany to go back home, but or if there was about to be, if there were, the soldier was going to PCS when they returned back from deployment or close to that time, sometimes the families moved back sooner. But really, most folks just stayed in place. But that's where they, that's where they lived. That's where their life was. They had jobs, foreign schools, and they had this life that they had established, just like if it was in any other state in the U.S. How long did you end up staying in Germany? From December 2001 till May 2006. You talk about building that community, building that family. What was it like leaving after five years? It was so sad. It was very sad. I wanted to come back to the States and kind of reconnect with my own family. But it was sad. And I had my daughter in February of 2006 at Longstool. And so we had that experience there and we're supported by a lot of our friends. And then we, you were leaving. And a lot of our friends had been there just about as long as we had, or they arrived in 2002 or even early 2003. So it had been quite a few years that you were together. Talk me through the return back to the United States and the end of your service obligation to, to the military? So it was exciting in a way to start something new. And I had this new baby and 
was starting this new life. We moved to Maryland. My ex-husband was getting a job with the government. And so we moved to Maryland. We moved in with his parents for about six weeks while we were looking for a place. And we bought a house. The hardest thing, honestly, was getting my license. Because my New Jersey license had expired. And I had the international license. I had to retake my driver's test once I moved here to Maryland. And I tried to get through it so many times by convincing them that they can just give me a license, but they did. They made me take the written test again. They made me take the driver's part again. And just getting reassociated with life in the States. And the other weird thing was insurance. I had no idea how to use insurance or what insurance was. Because at West Point, you just go to the doctor. At, in the military, you go to the doctor. Then I had to go to the doctor and I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know how to make an appointment. It's all these life things that you start learning pretty quickly out of having to. And we bought a house. I didn't know how to do that. But overall, it, we had a lot of support. My in-laws were very supportive. My ex-husband grew up in Maryland, so he still had some friends in the area. And then we joined, we both joined the Maryland Army National Guard. So we started to, it gave us a nice balance between entering civilian life and still keeping hold of the military life that we did really grow to love and enjoy. Talk me through real quick the decision to transition from active duty to guard. It had a lot to do with what the deployment cycles were looking like, even though I had not been to Afghanistan or Iraq and I desperately wanted to. It was more of a family decision because I had this new baby. And what would that be like for her if her father and I were both gone or if I was gone and he was gone and I was gone? And what would that be? life look like for her. So that went into a lot of the decision to actually come out of the active side and come into the National Guard side. Because at the time, they were also offering two years stabilization and were reducing. So we had the three-year inactive reserve commitment. They were also waiving that if you did the two-year stabilization with the Maryland Army National Guard. So I thought I could be completely done in seven years instead of eight. So it would made sense at the time to make that decision. It wasn't an easy one, but it definitely made sense. Did you feel like a fish out of water going from the active duty to the guard? Because you talked through the insurance and buying a house and getting your driver's license based off of five years overseas in Germany. What was it like going from active to guard? It felt like the good old boys club that we were not a member of. There was a lot of soldiers that the base we were at was kind of small. It was this old rickety building, but they had the soldiers there and the leaders there had been there for 20 years, 25. And where you're used to moving around to a lot of different posts or a lot of different jobs in the Maryland National Guard, you sort of stay put until there's an opportunity for promotion or until you feel like taking another opportunity. So there was a lot of longevity at each one of the bases, which is just not something that you're used to. You're expecting somebody to move on relatively quickly, and that's not the case. And they knew 
everything about the guard. They knew everything about their unit. They had all this historical knowledge that you were really coming in blind. And I was the S3, so I needed to know something. But I really didn't know anything. But there was a, the S3 and COIC was fantastic. It kind of explained everything to me and how the National Guard works. And he was able to kind of guide me so I'd fit in a little bit better. Because at first it feels like you just don't fit in. How did you start to to really have success there? How do you start to, to be a part of that team? Especially because it's been established for so long. They have certain ways that they do things. It was bringing new ideas, really. Because there was a lot of things they did the same and always did the same, but it didn't necessarily mean those things were successful. So ended up bringing a little bit of organization to the S3 shop and bringing a little bit, some new ideas helped kind of get my name out there and get myself established. And then a couple of months later, I started working for a defense contractor as a paralegal, which I wasn't trained to do. So I don't even know why they hired me, but they did. I worked there for a year and then I had my son. And after being home with both of the kids and just doing National Guard stuff on the weekend, I wanted to go back to work again. And the National Guard offered me an opportunity to come on as a DA civilian and work in the S-4 shop at the brigade level. And that's really where I felt like my career in the National Guard started to take off. I was there more often. I was involved in a lot of different things. We were deploying a lot of our units to Afghanistan. Still, so supporting that effort, it was a nice, it was definitely a nice transition. I really only could tolerate being a stay-at-home mom for one year. I tried, I tried, wasn't for me. Why? Was it, was it, you were used to the speed or the feedback of being in Germany and supporting those units abroad? I liked being home, but I liked doing, I liked being a part of something, I like doing different things. And I did, I definitely like the speed. I like the hustle. I'm an ICU nurse now. I like that adrenaline rush when you're doing five things at one time or 10 things at one time. I like all of that. So I, I really was looking for something. But when I first started working for the National Guard more full-time, I actually started out as part-time. I would work two to three days a week. So it helped me balance my home life and balance my work life and what I was looking for in my work life. But I liked, I just liked being a part of something bigger. I think there's a part of that for all of us that once you start getting like that professional discussion with people about complex problems, it's hard to lose that. I mean, I come home sometimes and I talk to my four-year-old or my six-year-old, but those are professional problems. That's right. why is the sky blue for 15 times? <laughs> yes. And there, yeah, there's value yeah. in that. And there's a lot of love and compassion and a ton of patience, but it's a different skill set. And it's a much longer term investment. And I think sometimes we need that. We need the office and we need adults to solve different problems with. Exactly. 
That is so, so, so true. Using your brain. Talk me through the transition from your time in the guard to what you alluded to becoming an ICU nurse. What was that like? So I had thought about throughout my adult life, I had thought about what it would be like to become a nurse. I like caring for people. I like kind of the medical complexities that nursing involves, but also the art of nursing, the people side, which is, you know, a lot of what you find in the military life too. And I ended up going back to school. I had to take a few prerequisite courses, which I took at the community college in order to even get into nursing school. And my boss allowed me, because by that time I was working more full-time for the National Guard, he allowed me to take one leave day a week to be able to do my prerequisites because I had to take a microbiology and anatomy and physiology, which all had to be in person. And it was all labs and things like that. When I got into nursing school, then I had to revert back to the one weekend a month kind of a schedule. I still had a lot of responsibilities, but nursing school was full-time. I went to the local community college. Being in the National Guard, they actually gave you 50% off for the tuition. So it ended up being $60, $70 a credit, which was crazy and affordable. And when I was finished with nursing school after two years in 2013, I started to look for a job in a hospital. I applied for many jobs throughout the state of Maryland. I didn't get any of them. I didn't even get a call. And so I, my neighbor worked on an oncology unit at Johns Hopkins. And I knew I wanted to do oncology because I had encountered an oncology unit during my clinical time. And it felt like those were the types of patients that I really wanted to work with. And my neighbor worked on an oncology unit at Johns Hopkins and gave my resume to her manager, who ended up giving my resume to another manager because they were opening, they were taking one unit and making two units out of it. And it was bone marrow transplant and hematologic malignancy. So like the lymphoma, multiple myeloma population, as well as bone marrow transplant. But they're also planning in the next year to convert one of the units to an oncology ICU, which also intrigued me. So I ended up getting that job and starting at Johns Hopkins in 2013 in August. And I was still doing work for the National Guard. I ended up transitioning to a different unit, an aviation unit up near Aberdeen Proving Ground. And I tried to balance both for a while. I was able to do it for about two years, but then after that, it was really too hard to do both. It's nursing, you have a rotating schedule AM and PM, so day shift, night shift, and you never know what your schedule is going to be for the next six weeks. And so trying to plan two different lives wasn't really working, especially as the kids were getting a little bit older and going to school and it was too many things to balance at once. So I ended up leaving the National Guard in 2015 and just really focusing on nursing. But at Johns Hopkins, it's the same thing that I had always found about the military that I loved. And the National Guard, too, was that community feeling again. And when I went to my unit to go see it during my interview, I immediately felt that and knew that was the right place for me. And I was just crossing my fingers that they hired me, and luckily they did. 
what was it like coming in as a nurse with a little bit more experience under your belt? Because normally you think of nurses, they're coming in out of college, they're in their mid twenties at the latest. You were coming in towards your thirties. Yes. The thing that it actually helped the life experiences help you communicate with patients when they're going through something that's challenging or when there's difficult family situations or difficult patient situation, it's a little easier to navigate having that kind of distance instead of coming right out of school. So those things definitely made it easier. But sometimes when the patient would see me, because I was 35 at the time, they would thought I was there on that unit for many years. And when I would say, I, oh, when I say, how long have you been here? And I say three months or six months, they're very surprised. Or if I say I have to go get someone else to help me, they were very surprised. But overall, I thought it was a little bit easier transition having the life experience, especially if you're helping a patient work through an end of life decision or working with a family on an end of life decision and what that means. It does help. What is it like? Because oncology is primarily you're dealing with cancer patients and it's, it, it's right. for the most part, an older population. Actually, so I do work on an adult unit and there's a variety of ages of folks that do end up with a cancer diagnosis, especially when you're talking about like the blood cancers, they can be in a much younger population. The youngest patient we've had is 17, but typically our, the ages of our patients are anywhere from 40 to 60, but we do see some in their 20s and we do see some 80, 90. We had a patient couple weeks ago was 98 years old. So it's, it's really a variety of age ranges. Because of the nature of treating cancer, do you end up building these longer relationships with your patients? Definitely. Because you see them more often or you see them from the outpatient world to coming into the inpatient side and back out again. Their families do keep in touch. We actually had a soldier who was on our unit in the summer. He had two bone marrow transplants back to back. He ended up, they wanted to promote him to corporal. So they did a promotion ceremony in the room, which was really great because he was out of Walter Reed. He was in Walter Reed because he was sick for so long. But he ended up passing. And some of our nurses went to the funeral service at Walter Reed. His mom still keeps in touch with me because she wanted to coordinate with us. She wanted to get lunch for the unit. She wanted to get dinner for, you know, things like that to really kind of pay the nurses back and the staff back for the time that we took care of her son. But you do develop those kinds of relationships because he passed away at the end of August and she still keeps in touch with me. Do you think that makes it easier or tougher to do the job? I would say, I would honestly say in some ways it makes it tougher because you become emotionally tied to that patient and their family. And when they're not there anymore, it's really tough. But also 
you kind of feel the reward in helping them through these challenging times. We also see a lot of patients that do really well. We see a lot of patients that come out of the ICU and get to go home. We had someone come back into the hospital a few weeks ago, but he had been on our unit for six months the year prior. And he had pictures still from the party we threw him when he was going to his subacute rehab facility. And he said, do you remember the party? I said, yeah, I remember the party. He said, these are the pictures. Do you remember the pictures? I said, I remember all of them. So it's, you do develop these really great relationships. And you also do see folks that are doing well. And they come back to see you when they're coming back for appointments. Even we have a patient that was with us many months and she ended up being cured. She's in Ohio. She comes back once a year for her appointment to get checked out. And we see her every time. And she's doing very well, her and her husband. Was it like with the nursing team to be able to have those benchmarks of success and positive influences? You have to really remember them. Because sometimes you will see a lot of death that happens over and over, and it can be really tough on the staff. You have to really remember and even look back at statistics and see everyone who did go home and everyone who had a successful bone marrow transplant, everyone who did get out of the ICU and what those metrics look like and put it into perspective. Because at Johns Hopkins, you do about 350 to 400 bone marrow transplants a year. And when you see the success rate, and most of them are done on the outpatient side, when you see that success rate, it's really very good. When you see some of the patients come into the hospital, then you see the ones that are not doing very well. So that's the part that you remember and you forget about the the other 375 that did very well. How does it compare that relationship with the nurses the doctors and the team there versus your experiences in the military or at West Point with building teams and growing, developing together? I think I see it more now because I'm a nurse manager. My team is 140 nurses, support staff, clintics, folks that sit at the front desk answering the phones. So everyone has a very different role. But then you also have the patient dynamic. Your team stays relatively constant, but the patients are always changing. So it's kind of managing both. Our provider groups in oncology are wonderful. There's a lot of nurse practitioners on each one of the teams. The attendings rotate through on a very regular basis. So you get to know the provider teams. It's not an ever-changing situation because they are in a specialty area. The ICU providers, they do the same. They rotate through every six weeks or so. So they're with you for an extended period of time. They get to know the nurses and the nurses get to know them. So you trust the decisions that they're making because of those relationships. And that's very similar in the military. If you trust your commander, you trust your leader, that they're telling you to do the right thing. It's nursing. A lot of nursing is kind of carrying out orders from the provider group. You're giving input and you're giving what you see, but, and you're even making suggestions on what orders need to be placed or what interventions we need to do. But a lot of it is trusting that provider is seeing the same picture that you are, why they're putting those orders in for you to do them. What's been the hardest part of it? COVID, I will say, and 
COVID, when it started, we had no idea what was happening. It was very scary. The hospitals, there's a lot of patients that didn't want to come into the hospital because of COVID. And then there's a lot of patients that were intubated and very sick. So a lot of our units that were non-ICU flipped over into ICU level units very quickly. And so you, what ended up happening is that you had an ICU nurse paired with a non-ICU nurse, and then they may have three ICU level patients together as a team because the second person didn't have the same level of training. So there's a lot of things where you had to be very creative, but also we never knew how long this COVID thing was going to last. It was invisible. And you could say, even if you think about wartime, you can say that deployment is going to come to an end in a year, in 15 months, in six months, whatever. But with COVID, we had no idea. And really, there's still a lot of things that are, have changed healthcare in the face of healthcare now as a result. There's a lot of turnover. A lot of nurses have left healthcare. A lot of doctors have left healthcare during the height of the pandemic when the unemployment payments and things like that were pretty high. It wasn't worth it to come to work in the hospital. It was worth it to be at home where you would say you're, you're a little bit safer. For oncology at first, our patients live that way. They live with a mask. They live away from sick people. So they actually weren't getting COVID at all. It was the other folks that are out in the community that were coming into the hospital with COVID. So we had to move a lot of our staff from our oncology units over into the main hospital area, taking care of the COVID patients because we were trying to isolate the oncology patient from the virus because their immune system is really basically non-functional. But I think that and then the, just the remnants of COVID that still happened was a very hard situation. And at the time, I was a nurse manager for about six months. What's the future look like? I think finally in healthcare, things are starting to stabilize a little bit. As far as nurses staying in place a little bit longer. Now, you know, there's nurses on my unit that have been there for 40 years, 30 years. We have a lot of longevity. But then there's also, after a year, some nurses will move on to do something else in nursing or go to a different unit or go to a different hospital. So we definitely see some of that still, but it's not as fast as it was when a lot of nurses were leaving to go be travel nurses because that's where the money was. There's a lot of travel nursing contracts related to the pandemic that were very lucrative. And so if you're kind of chasing the money at the time, or you could chase the money at the time, then a lot of people were going to do those things. But that is all really settled out. Looking back at your time at West Point and looking back at your time at the military, really what have been the biggest takeaways for you and what you got from it? I think it's actually helping me as a nurse manager there's a lot of complicated, complex situations that you work through on a daily basis, whether it's with patients or with staff, that 
I feel like with my communication, I'm very clear. Presenting information is very clear. And those skills aren't always very common in the leadership world in healthcare. Because you're coming from a different point. You're coming from, you're growing from something else. You're going from a nurse to be a nurse leader. Or you're going from a provider to be a leader in that way. So you have to kind of develop those kinds of skills. But I felt like I, when I came in the door, I already had them. That really the only skill you needed to pick up was how to be a nurse. Yeah. Which that's not easy, but <laughs> as far as being organized and communicating, yeah, that was fine. That part was fine. I didn't want to downplay that. It's like saying the only thing you need to be a, is to be a rock star is to be able to play the guitar. That's not completely <laughs> true. <laughs> oh, God. As we close up, would you have any comments that you want to say to the class? No, I, well, I think this is really interesting because a lot of us have probably gone all different ways in all different directions and all, we all started in the same spot, but the way our lives have taken us professionally, as far as our families go and things like that, I think it's really neat to hear everyone's story. And, you know, I still keep in touch with Ashlyn Gaines and Natalie Friel and Aaron Gilliam and you know, it's great to see where their lives have taken them and the friendship that we've been able to maintain over all of these years. But I think there's always going to be that common commonality with our class and you know, the year we graduated and what happened after that. But also to see where everyone else has ended up, I think is really great. So I'm glad that you did this, Joe. I appreciate it. I mean, the ability to hear the stories and I think too often we compare ourselves to each other and you look at the selfless service that all of us have done. I mean, what you've been able to do when you were in Germany, when you were in the guard with Maryland and now as a, an oncologist nurse, just huge impacts. And I think sometimes we downplay the impact we could have because we think globally when we could be thinking locally, we think about numbers of mm -hmm. people and we could be you. thinking about impact on one person. Yes, you're right. Again, thank you very much for sharing today. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. Till duty is done. 2001. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat, during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking Flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, hand-crafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.